Hello, everyone, and Happy New Year to you. This is Deepa Ayer, and I'm so excited to welcome you to the Solidarity is This podcast, our first one for 2019. I hope that you're in a state of gratitude and optimism as we begin this year, and that the year brings you what you ask of it. For those of you who are new to the podcast, welcome. Here on Solidarity is This, I ask two main questions. First, how is America's racial landscape changing? And second, what are the most effective and transformative frameworks, analyses, and practices around equity, inclusion, solidarity, and liberation that we can learn from? To answer these questions, I speak with organizers, movement leaders, writers, artists, and more. This year, in 2019, you can expect to hear from people in other sectors as well who are exploring equity and inclusion practices. As always, I'd love your feedback, your ideas, your reviews on iTunes, and your downloads and subscriptions. You can find Solidarity Is This on a range of platforms from iTunes to Stitcher to Spotify and Google Podcasts, and I'm excited that we're part of Podcasts in Color, hashtag Podcasts in Color. You can find more information at www.solidarityis.org as well. So this month, here's what you have to look forward to on the podcast. Now, chances are that you have been to a protest in your city or on your campus over the past few years. The Women's March, the Muslim ban protests at airports, families belong together rallies in front of Department of Homeland Security offices or the White House or at the border. Protests and direct actions such as these have become a mainstay of how we express our concerns, our dissent, our outrage, and of course, our solidarity. This month, I'm in conversation with L.A. Kaufman, whose new book, How to Read a Protest, provides a fascinating look at mass mobilizations and what they accomplish. I'm also speaking with Manju Rajendran, an activist based in North Carolina, who is working with a broad coalition on the ground there to raise awareness around the inhumanity of immigration enforcement measures. As we tape this podcast, we're still in the midst of a government shutdown, and the president is still pushing for a wall at the southern border. We'll talk about the impact of this with Manju and hear about how it's affecting people on the ground. So let's get started. I'm excited to welcome Ellie Kaufman, whose book, How to Read a Protest, The Art of Organizing and Resistance, has just been published by the University of California Press. Ellie is a grassroots organizer and movement journalist for more than 25 years. Ellie's book is based on her own experiences organizing some of the largest demonstrations in U.S. history in 2003 and 2004. Ellie, thank you so much for joining me on Solidarity Is This. Thanks so much for having me, Deepa. So, Ellie, I want to start off by actually asking you, before we talk about the book, about yourself. And I know that you have been involved in grassroots movement building and movement journalism for more than 35 years. What's your point of entry into this work? I was a teenager when I first got involved uh, in one of the early rumblings of what became a massive right-wing shift in Wisconsin. There was a bill in 1980 that would have required parental consent minors who were seeking abortion. And that was the first issue that I organized around. And so my Mm -hmm. point of entry into the movement was very much through feminism and through, you know, the feminist movement of the early 80s in Milwaukee. But I've been involved in a great many different movements of many different kinds in the intervening years. 
And clearly you have been involved for quite some time, and I'm curious to hear more about the movements and organizing work you've done. But first, what led to this book? Why was it important for you to write it? And did the particular political moment that we're in right now have something to do with why you wrote it? Yeah, this book came against the backdrop of some questions that have haunted me for a very long time. I was one of the key organizers of what still stand as some of the largest protests in U.S. history. I was the mobilizing coordinator for the massive Iraq anti-war protests of 2003 and 2004. And from an organizing point of view, those were extraordinary accomplishments. Mm -hmm. We managed on February 15th, 2003 to put together what still stands as the largest single day of protest in world history. When I say us, there was people all around the world working on it. I was the mobilizing coordinator for a massive event in New York City. We did that in not much more than six weeks. People threw so much of their best energies into reaching out, getting huge numbers of people to show up for this event. And it, of course did not stop the war. George Bush shrugged it off, Mm -hmm. um, shrugged off the single, what was at that point, the single largest outpouring of protests in world history, and went ahead and waged war. We mobilized many times again over the subsequent years, including um, I was, you know, again, the mobilizing coordinator for a, a huge protest outside the Republican convention in August 2004 that was you know, designed to be part of a movement to dislodge Trump. I was at that one, and I remember it. You were at that one. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, and as you know, we marched in huge numbers. It later came out in a deposition. At the time, the, the NYPD said only 400,000 had marched, and it came out later that, in fact, it was over 800,000. And yet, that didn't stop George Bush from getting reelected mm. that fall. So I had been grappling you know, thinking for many years about could we have done something different? Had those protests been worth doing? What do mass protests do in America? What do they accomplish? I've also been involved in a great many direct action protests and direct action campaigns that have won. You know, I was holding those tensions in my mind. And then I went to the Women's March in 2017, the day after Trump's inauguration in Washington, Mm D.C. And I, as a longtime organizer, was instantly struck by how very different it was from anything I'd experienced in more than three decades of organizing and marching. And I wrote this book as a way of explaining what was different what's changed about organizing and movement over the last 40 to 50 years and why the resistance to Trump is really very different from any grassroots upsurge we've seen before in recent U.S. history. You know, when I was reading the book, one of the things I found really interesting is when you said, you know, oftentimes mass mobilizations are not going to achieve your particular policy outcomes in the short term. And you just gave us some examples around not being able to stop the war or not being able to stop the reelection of Bush, for example. So what then are the ways in which we should look at mass mobilizations? How can we gauge whether they're successful or not? So first of all, you were careful to specify mass mobilization. And one of the things that I'm doing in this book is trying to offer 
um, protest literacy. People tend to look at protests as if they're all the same and as if they all work the same way. And they really don't. And so mass mobilizations are the, you know, these big gatherings where you usually have a permit mm -hmm. so that everyone can participate, right? So people aren't engaging in civil disobedience. They aren't risking arrest. They're usually planned well in advance because it takes a long time to organize buses and all the things that you need to get a huge crowd to assemble. They function differently than, say, a sit-in or a blockade or an occupation or a lightning march or, you know, some other tactic. And, but they always get evaluated through one criteria in the, the kind of classic mainstream discourse about them. There's this question like, do protests work? And by work, people mean, did they lead to legislative or policy change in the short run? Mm -hmm. And they almost never do. So then the message we get is they don't work and they're a failure. You marched and you didn't, like, pass legislation in the Republican-controlled Congress the next day. Right. So somehow this protest gets seen as a failure. What I see when I look at mass mobilizations is that the criteria to decide whether or not they work is very different, that these are not first and foremost pressure tactics, or to the extent that they're pressure tactics, they're pretty mild pressure tactics. What they really are, first and foremost, are movement building and movement sustaining tactics. So they're moments for us to come together and feel like we belong to something bigger than ourselves and to get the sense of hope and possibility and power that comes with that. And so the criteria by which you want to judge how well they worked are such that you can't really answer that question immediately. The question is, you know, did more people become involved in the movement than were involved before? Did they go on to do important work in the aftermath that they might not have done otherwise? Mm -hmm. You know, did they form new groups or did they strengthen existing groups? Or alternately, were they exhausted from the effort of organizing this event and then they went home and didn't do anything more? So I look at it and I judge their effectiveness through a very different lens. And now, you know, with the perspective of two years of time, I think you can look back at that first wave of women's marches and say without a doubt that they galvanized a huge amount of self-organizing and gave people the hope and sense of collective power that were needed to take up that work. I really like how you talked about protest literacy. And I think you're going to be educating a lot of us about the differences, because I think that people think it's one and the same to participate in a mass mobilization versus, say, a sit-in or a die-in or anything like that. So let's talk about those a little bit. Direct actions that perhaps are targeted or are targeting a particular entity or a government official, for example, and maybe don't include as many people. Can you talk a little bit about how those are different than the mass mobilization? Absolutely. One myth we have is that a protest's power is directly correlated to its size. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you step back from that assumption and you look back at history, you see very clearly that, you know, much as our huge mobilization didn't stop the war in 2003, those numbers did not equal the power to stop the war. You can see many occasions where a protest by a very small number of people, four teenagers sitting at a lunch counter, 
or, you know, one woman climbing up the Statue of Liberty, you know, really changed a larger conversation and set other things in motion. So protest, you know, it's like a toolbox, and there's a whole lot of different tools that much as, you know, if you're doing some kind of repair job, you're not going to use sandpaper when you need a hammer, and you're not going to use a screwdriver when you need pliers. Usually the way movements win is not through a single protest. It's Mm -hmm. through an unfolding campaign of pressure. And oftentimes, if you're working within the tradition of nonviolent resistance, you want a campaign of escalating pressure that creates a crisis for your opponent, forcing him or her to change because you've stuck them in a position where it's easier for them to give you some of what you want than to keep doing what they're doing. You know, so within that, some of the tactics you might use would involve a large number of people. You might all march on City Hall, but then you might also have, you know, a whole series of sit-ins that unfold after a big march. It's usually the pattern that creates change rather than any single action. And in particular, what tends to create that crisis, um, the kind of crisis that Dr. King famously wrote about in a letter from the Birmingham jail, is the sense of surge, is the sense that your movement is growing in force and power. So any single protest is really hard to evaluate outside of that larger campaign or that larger context. As you were speaking, I was thinking about even around immigration and how, you know, we've seen those big rallies, right, for immigration reform in the early 2000s, mid 2000s. And we've also seen the dreamers who occupy offices of legislators. We've seen, of course, what's happening at the border in terms of faith-based leaders coming to the border. And so is that sort of what you mean when you talk about this escalating pressure creates crisis and is part of this surge of action. Absolutely. And I also want to underscore that for most movements, these protest tactics are being used in relationship with other tactics that are less visible. Mm -hmm. So there will be, you know, lawyers who are filing lawsuits that may be stall the implementation of a particular policy and give you time to organize protests that create the pressure to try to change that policy, right? So people won't see that legal filing as having necessarily been part of the movement, but it ends up opening up space in which the movement can organize. Or, you know, there's lobbying that's happening or, you know, meetings with legislators that are happening behind the scenes, or there's a flood of phone calls or a flood of postcards. Mm -hmm. So, So many times the way that change happens is very complex and protest is the visible part that you see, but it's only one piece of the whole picture. That's right. And even with the Muslim ban, we saw that the litigation and the airport protests and creating, as you say, the space. So I think that's really helpful to have these contemporaneous examples, as your book points out, to understand how movement protests actually fit into these broader campaigns. You know, as we're speaking now, the Women's March is actually coming up in a few weeks, and you have written about the potential of it in your book. Tell us a little bit about why you see it as an important rallying point. When I look at those Women's Marches in 2017, the detail about them 
that jumped out first and foremost to me is how many of them there were. Mm. So there was a lot of attention on, on the big march in D.C. because, of course, the crowd dwarfed the crowd at Donald Trump's inauguration, and that itself was a, was a political statement. But there were also more than 650 other women's marches all around the country, a figure which, near as I can tell, and I'm, I'm a, a protest number geek, I research these questions carefully. Yeah, there's a table with all the numbers at the back of the book. Yeah, there's several of them, in yeah. fact. I'm that geeky. <laughs> um, and, and all of those numbers I had to reconstruct because these numbers don't really exist. And near as, near as I can tell, there's no precedent for that scale of coordinated protest on a single day before those women's marches. We've exceeded it since, but it was a jump up. I mean, there have been the idea of, you know, that you have coordinated protests around the country on something isn't new. But in the past, it was more like 200 locales, not 650. And one of the things that I use to frame the discussion um, in my book of the contrast between those women's marches and the 63 March on Washington is by looking at the signs that people carried and the way in which the bottom-up, women-led, grassroots character of this surge that happened in 2017 was reflected in the proliferation of handmade signs, the largest percentage I've seen at any protest I've ever gone to where it was this moment of people, mostly women, literally reclaiming their voices, um, in part through the signs they carried and through the coming together in the streets, which in turn, to return to that theme of opening up political space, I think created this you know, incredible sense of potential and capacity that helped energize people to go on and create those thousands of groups and all of that new organizing in turn translated into the extraordinary get out the vote operations that we saw happening at the local level all around the country, which flipped race after race and ultimately swayed the midterms. I'm glad that you mentioned the 63 March on Washington because I found that part of the book one of the most interesting parts of the book. And you write about how in that march everything was very choreographed from the program to the signage to the messaging. Can you contrast that a little bit with more current mobilizations? And I'm thinking of, for example, the Movement for Black Lives or the immigration protests, of course, the Women's March, which are more organic. What accounts for that change and what do you make of the ways in which these mass mobilizations have shifted since 63? In a word, what accounts for that change or in a phrase, it would be identity politics. It would be feminism, queerness what we call intersectionality. And there's a long process over decades where these debates were happening in the background of the 63 March, where figures like Ella Baker and Septima Clark, some of the key grassroots organizers of the civil rights movement, were advocating what they called like leader-rich or leader-full movements rooted in local communities, that elevate many voices instead of a single charismatic figure and that, you know, are profoundly appreciative of diversity, you know, not as a as a cliche in the way that it gets used like in the corporate context, but in the sense of of a small D democratic inclusion. You know, I think that a lot of people 
right now feel some amount of protest fatigue. You know, I talk to people sometimes who say, you know, I'm tired of marching. I'm tired of making my homemade signs. And and I think you're right, right? I mean, I think that oftentimes we can't gauge sort of whether we got the policy outcome as the way in which we think about our participation in mass mobilizations. But what do you say to people who are tired and exhausted and who often feel that, you know, these protests and marches are about slogan solidarity and not actual transformative solidarity. Can you provide some thoughts on that? I understand why people get burned out. And I don't think people should feel like there are protests like the Muslim ban protest. But that was a really like all hands on deck. This is a crisis turnout. Because in doing so, you may you know, change how this policy affects people's lives right now mm-hmm. in this moment. The women's marches are a little different. And the reason why people should go, and I hope people will go, is in some way, I don't want to overstate this point, but it's more for themselves, to go to look around at the crowd and see all the other fierce, strong, wonderful people standing with you. Feel that sense of standing together. Yeah, maybe Donald Trump won't feel it. Maybe he won't feel our power, but go so that you can feel our power and take that with you forward into what we know is a very perilous and very challenging time. It's different from going and saying, I'm going to go and then I'm going to feel discouraged and depressed if I don't see the immediate effect of it. Go and see if you can feel an effect on you that helps you keep working and pushing over what we know is going to be a long and difficult haul, but where we have really built something powerful that has beaten back a lot of Trump's first initiatives and has the possibility to drive him from office. Not today, not tomorrow, not the day after the women's marches, but over a long unfolding process that we can be part of if we are truly seeing ourselves as part of this movement, uh, which is one of the things that marching enables us to do. You know, in addition to kind of that transformative impact on yourself, there are ways to get involved, right? There are organizations all around the country at the local and national level that can give people who are doing the on-ramping that you talked about more ideas, more opportunities to be involved. So I think it's a matter of taking the step and then continuing to look at other ways of action as well. Absolutely. So tell us where people can find your book and your writing, L.A. Um, I know that folks are going to be interested in learning more about your thoughts on the mass mobilizations as well as the movement history that you're documenting and archiving. They can check out my website, which is lacoffman.org. Kaufman is spelled with two F and one N. I've written two books, How to Read a Protest, and also a book that came out two years ago called Direct Action, which is an exploration of how movements that have used nonviolent resistance have created change against long pause. That's great. I think anyone who is doing any sort of movement work right now needs to have those two books at hand as they work through this very complex moment. 
And I want to thank you, LA, for giving us guidance, because I think that sometimes we're so mired in the work that we don't have the historic understanding. We don't sometimes even get the long-term aspects of it. And so I really appreciate what you've done with this book, the examples, the history, and the long-term vision that you're kind of moving us towards. Uh, So thank you for writing it, and thank you for the work that you've been doing for so long. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. It's been really lovely talking with you. I hope that you all enjoyed that conversation with L.A. Kaufman as much as I did. And now I am excited to bring into the podcast uh, someone who is working at the local level using protest, using direct action and other forms of liberation education to lift up the issue of inhumane immigration enforcement and its impact on communities of color and immigrants. Manju Rajendran is a grassroots community activist and trainer based in North Carolina. She identifies as a queer working class South Asian immigrant woman. Manju is a member of the Anti-Oppression Resource and Training Alliance, or AORTA, and she brings 25 years of local, state, regional, and national level experience in liberation education, strategy, fundraising, community organizing, and communications. Welcome to the podcast, Manju. Thanks so much for having me. So, I've already introduced you a little bit, but I want to get a little bit deeper into some of the work you're doing in North Carolina. But before we get started, I know that what's on everyone's minds, and I'm sure yours as well, is the political dynamics that are playing out in Washington, D.C. and all around the country with this government shutdown and the inhumanity of the proposed border wall. So as a community-based activist, I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about what this moment means to you. In these last couple of years, I feel like I've heard with the people I work with on the ground and the increasing level of fear that is so intense and takes me back to some of the intensity we experienced around 9-11 and, and then quadruples that intensity in, in various ways. I'm hearing that in every possible community that I work with. And I know that you've been really active on immigrant rights issues. And as you think of the climate of fear that you talked about, I'm curious to know if you can share a little bit about the dynamics around the work that went into stopping the deportation of Samuel Oliver Bruno. And I know this took place over a series of months, but it kind of came to a head, I believe, in November of last year. So can you tell us a little bit about him and about what happened to him and how the community responded? Samuel Oliver Bruno is a community member who has been a congregant at Citywell Church in Durham for the last year and was in sanctuary for that whole time in order to be able to stay close to his wife, Julia, who is ill and needs her family close, and his son, Daniel. When Samuel was in sanctuary, he received a letter from the United Customs and Immigration Enforcement, mm-hmm. and they told him that he had a biometrics appointment that he needed to show up in person for. Mm-hmm. And uh, he ended up, after careful reflection, deciding to show up for his appointment and in full faith that it would be a, a legitimate step towards him receiving the status that would allow him to remain with his family and his community. 
mm-hmm. in the place that he's been for a long time. But it turned out to be a trap set up by ICE agents who were dressed up as immigration applicants themselves. Wow. They were standing in line on either side of him, and they tackled him to the ground, and his son, Danielle, just put his body right there over his father. And if you hear Danielle talking about it, he describes feeling really proud of those extra minutes that he Mm. took back from the state, that togetherness that he stole back from a system that somehow finds justification in tearing families apart in this way. And Samuel was torn away from his son and was taken out to a van out back, Mm. an unmarked vehicle by ICE agents. Clergy tried to intervene and sang and prayed, and a circle of 27 people gathered close to the vehicle with locked arms and sang and prayed and chanted, and there were probably about 120 other folks who gathered around us. They were singing with us, and we were arrested that day trying to block that ICE vehicle And so when the community heard about the appointment, I guess there was this sense that something like this could happen, right, given the fact that it has been happening all around the country. And so is that why there was sort of an organized effort to kind of be a shield and a protection for Samuel? There were a great number of congregants from City Well Church who traveled from the church where Samuel was in sanctuary to the biometrics appointment with him Mm -hmm. and a number of other folks from various immigrant justice organizations accompanied him as well. There's a long tradition of this kind of sanctuary work Mm -hmm. and this kind of accompaniment work related to solidarity movements that have intervened on unjust immigration practices by the U.S. and unjust imperialist action that we participate in in Central and South America. And Manju, can you share a little bit about why you got involved, why this was an important issue for you to raise your voice around? I know that you are from North Carolina and grew up there, but I'm just curious if you can share a little bit about your own personal reasons for being involved and also for risking arrest in the way that you did. My family is one that has struggled with fear of deportation, like so many families across the U.S. Mm -hmm. My mom became undocumented when we left my abusive father. She lost her dependent status, and it felt worth it to flee the violence we were experiencing. We began by being very careful and living in the shadows and being underground about all kinds of parts of our lives. And and more and more, we, my mom led us in a consciousness that mm. our safety would not be in hiding, but in, in moving into the light and moving into greater public solidarity and collective action that, that our safety was actually in numbers. And so, I mean, what happened to Samuel that day, that horrible trick that the immigration system played on him was really 
like the nightmare that haunted my whole childhood. I was really mm-hmm. afraid that that was going to happen to us any day. And I just showed up for Samuel's family the way that in many different ways folks have shown up for our family over the years. Mm-hmm. Not so literally, but in right. a multitude of other ways. And Manju, first of all, thank you for sharing your personal story. And I really resonate with how you talked about your mother's leading you out into the light. And it also reminds me, and I think anyone listening, that solidarity practice is something that people have done for each other and do for each other all the time without calling it that. Um, that's showing up for each other. So really appreciate you and really resonate with what you shared. So thank you for that. And we're going to talk again about your mother in just a little bit. So I'll circle back to her. But I'm curious to know if you can tell us where is Samuel right now and how is his family? In the days after Samuel's kidnapping by ICE agents, they shuffled him around from detention center to detention center. It felt like the stronger our outcry, the faster they seemed to move him. I mean, there were people calling and writing letters and legislators taking really strong stands. And I believe that under any other administration that they would have used their discretionary powers to grant him the welcome that he deserves. Samuel was without any form of due process put onto a bus, no communication about where he was going or what was happening. And he ended up in in Matamoros, Mexico. And our folks received him on the other side. That's part of the story of solidarity here that that the international networks of care and support actually Mm -hmm. extend across borders in a multitude of ways that no state can. And his son and one of our other fellow arrestees traveled there and broke bread with him and sent pictures back and yeah, there was something really sweet one of one of the other arrestees said the other day about how even when we are not able to literally stop the deportation, if we can convey a steady message that we see and treasure the humanity of each other, that we don't forget about anyone, that we that we love you, that we are here for you, that that message needs to get through even when our literal community defense efforts fail. But we have a lot of grief, too, about not having been able to stop this deportation. And we really hope that people all over the country continue to perpetuate this example of showing up for each other and protecting each other and blocking ICE at every turn, making it clear that ICE is not welcome in our communities. And, you know, that we show up for each other the way that we do around immigration justice, that we also show up for each other around racial justice, around gender Mm -hmm. justice, like that we create a web in such a way that if they come for any one of us, that we're able to strengthen the web in that place with the force of all of us at once. I like that. And I appreciate you saying that sometimes our campaigns are not successful, but it's the way that we go about them that makes a difference and that can continue to give us hope and strength and the will to go on. I want to turn now to hearing a little bit about your work through the Anti-Oppression Research and Training Alliance. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about Erota and the work you do, and particularly interested in some of the popular education work that you do? And I think that folks listening might want to know what that even means in kind of real-life justice work. So if you could explain that, too, that would be great. Yeah, I'm one of 13 members of AORTA, Anti-Oppression Resource and Training Alliance, and we're a worker-owned cooperative that does anti-oppression education using popular education techniques, which just means that we believe that the people have the answers to solve the problems that our communities are facing, and Mm -hmm. that we as facilitators can help create spaces to be creative and resourceful and ingenious and brilliant with each other. (laughs) The tradition that I came into through Southern Black-led movement organizing and a tradition that has all kinds of international roots worth exploring. Mm AORTA has been around for eight years doing anti-oppression education in all kinds of settings from tiny collectives to large-scale unions and nonprofit organizations and academic institutions. In all those different settings, we're hearing that this political moment is bringing great challenges. And, and in that, in those great challenges, we're, we're seeing folks build unlikely alliances and take much greater risk than they might have ever taken before. So it feels like with our ear to the ground that we're really hearing folks rise to the moment with all the white nationalism, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, other forms of oppression that are on the rise, that there's a movement rising to meet it that mm. is willing and, and ready to push back hard. And I would be remiss if we didn't spend a little bit of time talking about the food justice restaurant that your mother, and I know you are obviously part of, called Vimala's Curry Blossom Cafe in North Carolina. Can you share a little bit about how it came about and the values that undergird the food justice restaurant? Absolutely. When I was 14 or so, my mom went out for birthday dinner with a group of her friends, and they said to her, it seems like the abusive life you're living is really feeling impossible. What do you need? Mm. And she said, "Um, I just don't know how to get out. Like, I'm totally economically reliant on him. And the friend said, every time we walk by your house, you invite us in and you feed us. What would happen if we did that one day a week where we counted on you to make dinner for our families and we put money in a jar and and you're able to raise your own funds? And so out of that began this underground community kitchen just run out of our tiny home. And those meals that my mom sold out of the kitchen sustained us through leaving my father and living in various less than stable situations and sustained us for 18 years until Mm. the health department gave her a call and said that someone had called and told them about her operation and she would be fine if she served the food. So she Mm. gave away that food that day and Mm -hmm. um, had some 
tear-filled conversations with friends who encouraged her to make the big leap. And she called me. I was living in Chicago at the time, and she said, I'm only going to do this if you're willing to move home and go in on this with me. And I said, absolutely. I headed back from Chicago, and we worked hard to launch the restaurant. That was the year of the U.S. Social Forum in Detroit. Mm-hmm. We had our soft opening, and then I left for Detroit <laughs> and came back, and we opened a restaurant. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. And so the restaurant's been going strong for the last seven years. Wow. I love this story. (laughs) I do. It's a a food justice restaurant, which means that workers are paid a living wage. Producers, uh, farmers, um, other local collaborators are paid fair prices for their contributions. We source most of the meat and produce from small family farms and a lot of what waste is produced gets composted. And there's an everybody eats policy, which means that no one is turned away from the restaurant for lack of money. It's a remarkable story. And the website, if folks are interested, is curryblossom.com so that you can check it out. And if you are anywhere in the Durham area, you should absolutely support Simla's Curry Blossom Cafe. Well, thank you for all that you do. And I really enjoyed this conversation. I want to thank my guests, Ellie Kaufman and Manju Rajendran, for joining the Solidarity Is This podcast this month. I hope that all of you who are listening gained as much as I did in terms of their wisdom and their knowledge on issues that are really important to all of us and on building movements that last for the long run. Please check out L.A. Kaufman at www.lakauffman.org. Manju Rajendran's work at aorta, A-O-R-T-A dot co-op, C-O-O-P. And I also encourage you to take a look at solidarityis.org where you can find past podcasts as well as syllabi and other information about best practices on solidarity. Lastly, before we conclude, I wanted to let you all know that I'm writing a little bit more this year. That's one of my um, goals that I've set for myself. And I recently wrote an essay at the start of the year about how in 2018, I was on the seesaw of outrage and numbness when it came to a lot of the issues that we talked about on this podcast and that I know are important to each of you. And I also put forth some guiding questions around how we prepare for 2019, how we get ourselves off of that seesaw, how we envision a broader, more inclusive and long-term movement, and how we think about our own individual roles in movement building and in nonprofit sectors and the like. So I hope that you'll check that out. It's on Medium under my name. And please contact me, tweet at me, write me, and let me know what you would like to hear about this year on Solidarity Is This. Thank you so much for listening and thank you for all that you do in your communities. Take care and I'll talk to you next month on Solidarity Is This. Solidarity Is This.